Section 44 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 15, verses 1 to 9. Hypocrisy of Scribes and Pharisees. Danger of Traditions. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 9. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honour thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honour not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. We have in these verses a conversation between our Lord Jesus Christ and certain scribes and Pharisees. The subject of it may seem, at first sight, of little interest in modern days, but it is not so in reality. The principles of the Pharisees are principles that never die. They are truths laid down here, which are of deep importance. We learn, for one thing, that hypocrites generally attach great importance to mere outward things in religion. The complaint of the scribes and Pharisees in this place is a striking case in point. They brought an accusation to our Lord against his disciples. But what was its nature? It was not that they were covetous or self-righteous. It was not that they were untruthful or uncharitable. It was not that they had broken any part of the law of God. But they transgressed the traditions of the elders. They did not wash their hands when they ate bread. They did not observe some rule of mere human authority which some old Jew had invented. This was the head and front of their offence. Do we see nothing of the spirit of the Pharisee in the present day? Unhappily, we see only too much. There are thousands of professing Christians who seem to care nothing about the religion of their neighbors, provided that it agrees in outward matters with their own. Does their neighbor worship according to their particular form? Can he repeat their shibboleth, and talk a little about their favorite doctrines? If he can, they are satisfied, though there is no evidence that he is converted. If he cannot, they are always finding fault, and cannot speak peaceably of him, though he may be serving Christ better than themselves. Let us beware of this spirit. It is the very essence of hypocrisy. Let our principle be, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. We learn, for another thing from these verses, the great danger of attempting to add anything to the word of God. Whenever a man takes upon him to make additions to the scriptures, he is likely to end with valuing his own additions above scripture itself. We see this point brought out most strikingly in our Lord's answer to the charge of the Pharisees against his disciples. He says, 
why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your traditions? He strikes boldly the whole system of adding anything, as needful to salvation, to God's perfect word. He exposes the mischievous tendency of the system by an example. He shows how the vaunted traditions of the Pharisees were actually destroying the authority of the fifth commandment. In short, he establishes the great truth, which ought never be forgotten, that there is an inherent tendency in all traditions to make the word of God of none effect. The authors of these traditions may have meant no such thing. Their intentions may have been pure, but that there is a tendency in all religious institutions of mere human authority to usurp the authority of God's word is evidently the doctrine of Christ. It is a solemn remark of Bucer's that a man is rarely to be found who pays an excessive attention to human inventions in religion, who does not put more trust in them than in the grace of God. And have we not seen melancholy proof of this truth in the history of the Church of Christ? Unhappily we have seen only too much. As Baxter says, Men think God's laws too many and too strict, and yet make more of their own, and are precise for keeping them. Have we never read how some have exalted canons, rubrics, and ecclesiastical laws above the word of God, and punished disobedience to them with far greater severity than open sins, like drunkenness and swearing? Have we never heard of the extravagant importance which the Church of Rome attaches to monastic vows, and vows of celibacy, and keeping feasts and fasts, insomuch that she seems to place them far above family duties and the Ten Commandments? Have we never heard of men who make more ado about eating flesh in Lent than about gross impurity of life, or murder? Have we never observed in our own land how many seem to make adherence to episcopacy the weightiest matter in Christianity, and to regard churchmanship, as they call it, as far outweighing repentance, faith, holiness, and the graces of the Spirit? These are questions which can only receive one sorrowful answer. The spirit of the Pharisees still lives, after eighteen hundred years. The disposition to make the word of God of none effect by traditions is to be found among Christians, as well as among Jews. The tendency practically to exalt man's invention above God's word is still fearfully prevalent. May we watch against it and be on our guard. May we remember that no tradition or man-made institution in religion can ever excuse the neglect of relative duties, or justify disobedience to any plain commandment of God's word. We learn, in the last place, from these verses, that the religious worship which God desires is the worship of the heart. We find our Lord establishing this by a quotation from Isaiah, This people draweth near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The heart is the principal thing in the relation of husband and wife, of friend and friend, of parent and child. The heart must be the principal point to which we attend in all the relations between God and our souls. What is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart.
Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to every one? My son, give me thine heart. Let us leave this passage with honest self-inquiry as to the state of our own hearts. Let us settle it in our minds that all formal worship of God, whether in public or private, is utterly in vain, so long as our hearts are far from Him. The bended knee, the bowed head, the loud amen, the daily chapter, the regular attendance at the Lord's table, are all useless and unprofitable, so long as our affections are nailed to sin, or pleasure, or money, or the world. The question of our Lord must yet be answered satisfactorily before we can be saved. He says to every one, Lovest thou me? John chapter 22, verse 17. End of section 44.